forward. There are over 4 million working-aged blind and visually impaired people in the United States. And over 2 million of these people are unemployed. This is a staggering statistic, but many people defy these odds and are happily and gainfully employed, and we wish to share their stories with the world. Hello and welcome to Vision Toward Success the podcast that highlights stories of career development and lived experience. This podcast is brought to you by the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development. In our program, we feature employment success stories from visually impaired individuals for people with disabilities and their allies, in hopes of showing just how smart, hardworking, and capable this diverse community is. Welcome to Vision Towards Success. I'm Josh Pearson. Today, we have a very enlightening discussion with Sammy Grant. She's an actor, a dialect coach, and a teacher, as well as being a fierce and determined advocate for the blind community and the rights of students. She discusses equity in educational programs, authentic representations of blindness and other disabled identities, in the media, and empowerment through discovering your strengths and inner resolve to meet challenges. We're pleased to chat with her. And without further ado, we'll turn the mic over to Shaheem Sutherland, our student interviewer, and Sammy Grant, our guest. I'll be back with you after the break. My name is Shaheem Sutherland. I am an intern with the Polis Center. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. For our listeners, I was thinking we can go through about a little who you are and a little about your background. Sure. My name is Sammy Grant, and I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, which is where I am in the current moment. I'm 31. I am legally blind. And I work as a dialect and vocal coach and voice and speech teacher at universities for dialect coaching. I work in theater, TV, film. Um, I've also done some voiceover work. So just kind of any element of voice work within the entertainment industry. Is vocal coaching or that general field of work something that you were always interested in or is that something that came up later in life? I wanted to be an actor at first. Um, I started acting when I was 10, and I have a BFA in acting. During my training for the BFA, we took voice classes and dialect classes, and I really, really liked them, and I was pretty good at them. So I did some more independent study in college and coached a couple shows in college. And then after I was out of college, I was... Uh, auditioning for acting roles for a couple of years, but at the same time was starting to get dialect and vocal coaching work, which was uh, much more available. The jobs I was getting for coaching were a lot better in terms of pay, in terms of the projects I was getting to work on, the level of theater I was getting to work at. Um, It was a lot better than the, the handful of acting roles I was getting. So in 2015, I made a decision to take an entire year off of acting and focus solely on dialect and voice coaching and decided that if after the year I missed acting, I would go back. But I didn't. And I just stuck with coaching and then eventually got my MFA in voice studies. And now in addition to coaching, I also teach at the university level. For vocal coaching, did you learn that at your initial college or did you go to a new school to practice it? So both. 
um, in my undergrad, I took classes as an actor to work on my own voice. Um, we did voice, speech, dialects. We learned the international phonetic alphabet, things like that. So that was in my BFA. My MFA in voice studies was specifically focused on voice and was more focused on the teaching and coaching of voice rather than my own voice. We definitely still did work on our own voices, but it was through a framework of, you know, using ourselves as examples of how exercises can be applied and how to analyze voices and work with different people. So it was all through the lens of teaching and coaching. I coach and teach actors how to do different accents, how to learn an accent, um, how to do accents in an authentic and culturally sensitive way. So yes, that's the bulk of my work is with accents. Are you comfortable um, discussing your vision? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, because I do have some questions about how your vision affected your career or or any um, challenges you faced throughout it. So uh, did you experience any um, challenges um, working in this field? Yes. I'll give just a little bit of history about my blindness for context. So I have always been visually impaired. I have glaucoma, but I didn't reach legal blindness until I was 10. And as many people probably know, glaucoma is a degenerative disease. So I lose more vision over time. So in elementary school and middle school, I didn't need to use a cane. I didn't really use much assistive technology. In high school, I was at a crossroads where I should have been using those things, but was having a lot of identity issues and didn't want to sort of engage with my blindness. And then by college, I really had no choice. My vision had reached a level that I could either use my cane and assistive technology or I could just not participate in life in the way that I wanted to. In terms of the challenges in my career, it's a large reason, not the only reason, but a large reason I stopped acting. When I was in college, which was 2008 to 2012, we were not at a point that we are now where diversity and authentic representation and inclusion are widely discussed. And so when I was in college, I assumed that if I couldn't play sighted roles, I um, I would never have an acting career. And my teachers supported that. So I had one teacher in particular who gave me lessons to get rid of my, quote, blindisms on stage, where he would set set up these sort of like obstacle courses, I guess I'd call them, where he would set up a scene and I had to, you know, walk to the table and pick up, pick up a cup and step over this thing all without my cane. And I had to not look blind while doing it. And if I did, then I would have to stop and start over. And at the time I was like, I thought, oh, this is great. He's really helping me. But in reality, it was very psychologically damaging because I was basically being told that like, my blindness was a problem and that, um, you know, we weren't even doing acting. We were just sort of pretending that I wasn't blind, which isn't, which isn't what acting is. Yeah. And then when I, uh, throughout my time at college, I, I kind of started to realize that that wasn't great and what wasn't what I wanted. And then after school, when I was auditioning and working for a few years, there was this sense a lot of times when I would walk into an audition room, because I was walking in with a cane, there was an immediate sort of shutdown from the people who were running the auditions that I could just feel the energy in the room shift, knowing that, oh, you're not even really going to listen to my monologue because I'm blind and this is too much of a problem for you or too complicated or you couldn't possibly see me in this role because I'm blind. And then I would, when I would get cast, it would be for roles that were blind or that incorporated my blindness, but in a way that didn't feel right to me because it was more like, oh, this is a metaphor and we're going to use it to, to send a message rather than allowing me to play like a character. How did you go about confronting that? Well, I'll admit that I really didn't confront it at the time. As I sort of alluded to earlier, I've had a really 
hard journey of accept of my own acceptance of my identity as a blind person. And at the time, you know, in college and the few years after, I just sort of accepted it and just assumed everyone was right, that I didn't deserve these roles or that I wasn't castable. And so I didn't. And I shifted to a different career, which I love. I love doing my coaching and teaching career. And I really think that is actually my calling. Um, and so I'm really doing the confronting work now um, in, the, in the teaching and coaching that I do, um, confronting assumptions like this about people with disabilities or anyone of a marginalized identity, supporting the ideas of authentic representation and um, inclusion and all of that in my teaching and my coaching and my advocacy work. So it's happening now more towards what I'm teaching my students rather than standing up for myself years back. You did study abroad in, Lon- in London, is this correct? Yes, that's correct. How did that go? I went to London for my grad school, the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. I went there the 2018-2019 school year. It was rough, <laughs> I'll be honest. Um, not really because of my blindness, I also have arthritis, and there's. I think there's this misconception that because in England there's more universal health care, like and seemingly better health care than we have here in the United States, which I think is true. But it doesn't mean that the health care is system is easy. So because I have a lot of specialty medications and I need to see a lot of specialists. It took months and months to get to see a specialist who could then prescribe my specialty medications. So one of the medications that I need for my arthritis, which is an injection, I didn't get until six months into being there, and I was only there for nine. So I had really bad flare-ups, and it was uh, just really hard to deal with, and it affected my mental health. And so I was able to go to class and fully participate in my studies, but I didn't get to sort of experience England and London in the way that I thought I was going to. I, I, you know, going and had these fantasies of like going to the theater every weekend and going out with my friends a ton. And I did those things a few times, but because my health was so rough there, it was overall a negative experience for me. Now, during that time, were you using any assistive technologies over there? There and here, uh, I use a screen reader on my computer. I use JAWS. And then on my phone as well, I use VoiceOver on my iPhone. Um, Those are my main pieces of assistive technology. I will also occasionally use a video magnifier or CCTV. Um, I had a desktop one and a portable one in England, which I still have here. Um, I use those very rarely. It's for very specific circumstances like reading my mail um, or if I need to write something by hand. Um, But the main thing I use it for is the International Phonetic Alphabet, which um, is something used to teach dialects and accents for actors. And until just a little bit ago, I wasn't able to use JAWS fully with IPA on my computer or voiceover on my iPhone. So I would use the video magnifier to read the IPA because there's lots of symbols that are not in the alphabet that we use. Um, They're just like weird random symbols. So JAWS doesn't recognize them. So that's what I was using there. But I actually just like two months ago figured out a way to get JAWS to read the IPA, which is a huge game changer for me. Um, and I'm very excited about it. So that's what I used there. And like I said, what I also use here. Did you experience any other assistive technologies that were new to you over there in England that should be adopted over here? I didn't use any other assistive technology, but I will say that in my school, um, you know, we had a uh, we had a dyslexia and disability services department. I think that's what it was called. And I will say there is a lot more um, support for people with disabilities, and especially for people who are neurodivergent. 
I am not neurodivergent, but I had a lot of classmates who were. And it's, there's, yeah, just so much more support and so much more advancement in terms of how to make teaching um, accessible for all. So that would be the biggest change that I saw in in London, because a lot of times accommodations in the U.S. in acting classes or voice classes or just sort of more fine arts related classes, a lot of times those accommodations that are typical here are not even necessarily needed because like I don't really we didn't really take written tests, but the but I have a lot of other access needs that wouldn't be met by sort of a typical list here in the U.S. um, and are more ephemeral, I guess, less sort of able to be just like defined in a checklist. Um, I don't know if this makes any sense, but that that was a huge change that I saw there. And coming back to the U.S. and entering the university system as a teacher, it was just really apparent to me that the U.S. is just many, many steps behind in terms of accessibility within school. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, It's kind of like they have a set list of things to provide and Mm -hmm. that they will provide. And, you know, that's about it. You're you're on your own from there. And it's it's a little stressful at times because you may need a little more than that or you may not need most of the things on the list, but you need something else. And they just aren't flexible enough to work around that, unfortunately. (laughs) Absolutely. Working in this field, are, are there any other blind individuals that you've worked with or um, collabed with? In terms of specifically voice work, um, there's a woman in England named Frankie Armstrong, who's in England a very well-known voice teacher, and she is blind, and she came and did a workshop at my school, and that was very cool. There are others who are blind in in my specific voice field, but I haven't worked with them yet. I hope to one day. But the person I collaborate the most with is a woman named Marilee Talkington, who is a blind actor, director, activist. And she started a program called Access Acting Academy, which is a first-of-its-kind training program for blind and low-vision actors. And so I've been teaching for that for the last year. Marilee started it uh, a couple of years ago. It's unfortunate because... If you would have had a program like this and activists like this back then, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you would have still been in the acting field, having people supporting you, you know? Yeah. Well, it's it's very interesting because the way I met Marilee was actually through my undergrad. Um, she came to, she was brought in my freshman year, at the end of my freshman year, and gave a talk to the entire department, had a meeting just with the faculty, and then had a meeting with me and the faculty to really try and shift their thinking about how to work with me and any other disabled folks who might come through the program. And so that was fantastic in terms of me getting connected with Marilee and having her as a role model, mentor, cheerleader. But I think that at the time, I, my faculty was quite resistant to what Marilee had to say. So even though she was there and did come in and did do great work, I think there was a lack of openness to what she had to say because I would, I, I feel that things didn't really change that much from after she came. But I had her as a support from then on. So we got connected in 2009 and we are still friends and now collaborators to this day. How has COVID-19 affected your life slash line of work entertainment essentially shut down um during 2020 at least there was no theater for a while there was no tv or film work i'm very lucky that my life timeline played out the way it did because i finished my master's in the summer of 2020 and i had work lined up for um the coming school year for 20 the 2020-2021 school year. So I actually had more work teaching and made more money than I ever had during COVID-19. Um which was kind of mind-blowing because so many of my friends and colleagues in the entertainment industry were 
just out of work completely. So I was very lucky. I did teach everything online, which was quite a challenge because it was only my second year teaching, but my first year teaching my voice classes. And I had to not only figure out how to teach and what I wanted to teach and all of the sort of nervousness that comes with being a first year teacher, but then I also had to do it all online. You know, I, I wasn't in faculty meetings and I wasn't seeing students, you know, around and or connecting with my other faculty in the hallway as I normally would if we were in person was a very, very hard school year to get through. On the other side of it now, I'm very grateful for it. Um, and, you know, COVID is still here, obviously, and still affecting uh, work, but it's it's coming back slowly. So I did a film project earlier in the summer, and I do have teaching work for this fall. You know, we'll kind of see how it continues to play out. Having lived a experienced life now with some acting, vocal coaching, and meeting people around the world, what advice would you give your younger self about the world ahead? I'm specifically thinking of my high school self. Really try and work on acceptance particularly accepting not only the fact that I am blind and and learning how to celebrate that identity, but also learning to accept all of my access needs because I was very resistant to them in high school. And it caused issues when I got to college. I had a very rough freshman year of college because I was independent for the first time. And it was kind of a culture shock almost for me of being independent and also using all this new assistive technology um, and using my cane consistently. And so I really wish that my my teenage self had been able to accept the reality of my life. And, you know, everyone knew that I was blind. My close friends knew I was blind. Obviously, my family did. But walking around, I guess I <laughs> like sounds so silly now, but I preferred walking into things rather than using my cane. I don't know why I thought that looked like okay <laughs> to just walk into stuff. <laughs> like um, obviously, people would notice that too. But yeah, so so that would be my biggest thing. And 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 to then talk to my college and post college self is really getting to what you asked before is to have the. Um, bravery to confront what was going on at the time because I really knew like in my gut that it wasn't right and I wasn't happy and I didn't feel comfortable but I didn't know how to say that and how to fight for myself and I think that's not just on me I think I also wasn't taught how to do that so that's also advice for like those that were around me at the time yeah but you know I'm 31 now and while, you know, I've gone on a long journey of acceptance and I've, I'm certainly not ashamed or embarrassed of my access needs, I still have, you know, internalized ableism and some negative thoughts towards my blindness. And so still now at 31, you know, I wouldn't say like, oh, I'm, I've accepted it. I'm done. You know, I think it's going to be a lifelong journey um, to fight against the ableism and not accept it. I agree. And I think, you know, when we're younger in our teenage years, where I'm as well, is we're so focused on seeming, in quotations, normal and mm -hmm. fitting in that we don't want to show our disabilities, whether if it's temporary or not, you know? Yeah. And I think as we grow older, we start to realize, you know, this is just me and I, you know, I, I shouldn't care what other people think and I shouldn't be mm -hmm. worried about what other people think of me. As long as, you know, I have my needs and I'm able to succeed, I, you know, everything will be okay. Yeah. And I, I think for most people, as you said, it is a lifelong journey. It's not, you know, you're going to wake up in the morning and the switch is going to turn, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something I, um, have really started to think about lately talking about my disability with um, my therapist is even though now, like I was just saying, you know, I have a lot more acceptance of my access needs and I'm, uh, tr you know, try to be an advocate for myself and others. I can still feel myself when I'm walking around, you know, outside or, you know, I'm by myself in a, in a situation. Um, 
I can feel myself sort of hiding away. Like I'm using my cane and I'm doing what I need to do, but I'm internally just praying that no one notices me, um, which is really sad. You know, not that I have like the ego to say everyone needs to look at me, but trying to accept the fact that people are going to look at me just as people look at people just that they pass by. That's just what sighted people tend to do. But uh, to not try to hide myself away and close in on myself to be more open and and allow the world to see me. Yeah, honestly, I think it's perfectly normal for people in general to, you know, not want to stick out and have random people on the street stare at them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is a little weird, (laughs) but yeah, I don't think it's anything bad to, you know, not want to be noticed in public. I, I think as long as you're able to accept yourself and just keep moving forward, you know, things will Mm -hmm. be perfectly fine. Now, thank you so much for answering all my questions and meeting with me today. It was an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you for all of your questions and for sharing your stories. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Vision Towards Success. My name is Josh Pearson. We've been chatting with Sammy Grant, an actor and dialect coach, as well as an educator and advocate. In the first part of our show, Sammy spoke about her story and journey through education and into the career that she now holds on stage and in the university, helping others to achieve similar goals through her work with the Access Acting Academy, the first-of-its-kind program to prepare blind actors, writers, directors, storytellers for work in the entertainment industry, and to do so while helping them to tell disabled stories authentically. We had a chance to talk more with Sammy about the importance of community, the value of authentic representation of disability identity and lived experiences in the media, and advocating for your access needs and the wider needs of the disabled community through ensuring that true stories are told that reflect our experiences in the entertainment landscape. Often, blind kids grow up one of very few, if not the only blind person in their school, and they don't have much interaction with fellow blind students unless they intentionally seek that camaraderie out with other folks who are blind or low vision to be able to network and share lived experiences. Sometimes that can come in the form of a teacher for students with visual impairments recommending that they attend one or another blindness program. Sometimes it can come through blindness agencies seeking students out. One way or another, blind students are very lucky if they find their way into a peer network. We asked Sammy to share her journey in coming to accept her blindness as an identity. And in particular, we were curious, how did meeting and networking with other blind students help her to become comfortable with herself? It was pretty much non-existent for a lot of my life. Part of my resistance to my identity was also a resistance to others of the same identity when I was growing up. And I went to a public school. I had, quote, special education support I don't really like that term, but that's what it was called. And and there were a couple other blind people in my high school, so I interacted with them, but only in school and only in the moments when we were meeting with our vision aid, or I think that's what we called her. And I went to one or two events in my area that were for blind youth or for blind teenagers, but I at, at those events I could just feel myself being really resistant to it and not wanting to engage, not wanting to make friends. And then in college, I went to a really small college and there wasn't anyone else blind in my department, in the theater department. And the theater department is um, a little insular. (laughs) Um, I think at a lot of schools where we don't really interact with people outside of our department a lot. Um, And so even though I know there was one or two other blind people at the school, I didn't interact with them. And um, for my day job for a couple of years, I worked at uh, an organization that supported the blind community in Chicago called the Chicago Lighthouse. 
Um, I worked there for just under two years. Um, and so obviously there I interacted with a lot of blind people. But again, there was this resistance to really get to know people and to let them in and be friends with them. And so it really wasn't until the last few years that I started to actively engage with the blind community, meaning trying to form actual friendships, trying to follow more blind activists um, on Facebook and just, you know, just kind of being more aware of activism work that's going on. But yeah, that's that's a real ongoing project for me that I want to be actively working on. Just as blind youth struggle to find kinship and a sense of community with peers and within themselves, advocacy skills are an essential yet very difficult thing for young people to learn. Uh, Oftentimes, advocacy comes into a person's life out of necessity when they face access barriers or attitudes from members of the non-disabled public who base their views of blindness or other disabilities on stereotypes and misguided ableist perceptions. This is why a program such as Access Acting Academy is so valuable to those who walk through its doors. Blind students oftentimes need to advocate for things like accessible classroom materials. And we'll take that a step further and say that they also need to advocate for the right to be in that class and in their bodies as a disabled person and feel like they are welcome there. Uh, Sammy illustrated examples in the first part of her program where professors were very uncomfortable having a blind person on a stage. She is definitely not the only person to have experienced professors telling her that they did not think that she could easily take this class. Blind youth not only learn how to communicate their own personal experiences meaningfully through programs that empower them to learn self-advocacy skills, but they also advocate collectively for the community by helping to ensure stories by and about disabled characters are told honestly and authentically, and that the portrayal of these characters happens in a way that benefits not only actors, but people all across the entertainment and media landscape who identify as disabled. This includes directors, writers, cinematographers, photographers, costume designers, sound designers, stunt people, basically the wide network of media folks. Part of what Access Acting does beyond teaching acting and voice and just all the different parts of of acting is advocacy, Um, is learning how to ask for access needs, really to demand them, if we're honest, Um, and how to not only ask for access needs, but how to start changing some of those thoughts with casting directors, producers, people like that, because I think what we're at now is people are saying, yes, we need to have more representation in our stories, but we're still really struggling to get those stories with actors who are actually blind or disabled or, you know, whatever the need is. Um, So we, you know, we're still many steps away from where we need to be. That is the actual strength of Access Acting, and what draws me to it the most is the advocacy and the, the knowledge that this program is not just here to teach people how to act, but it is here to fully shift the industry to understand that disability stories need to be told, disabled people need to be telling them, and that disabled people need to be able to tell stories that are not about their disability. Part of the team working at Access Acting um, is someone who works heavily in casting, and he told a story about how he uh, he was teaching us, uh, I think it was a class on casting, and his students had to write a casting breakdown, um, and he showed a picture of someone who was disabled. I don't remember if this person was blind or a wheelchair user, it was one of the two. And so the people wrote, you know, the students wrote casting breakdowns that were saying, like, sickly man or, you know, like, 
out-of-work veteran or sort of all the stereotypes. And then um, at the next class, this this teacher uh, told them who this person really is and what their life is, which is a full expansive life, including their disability. And so these students had to rewrite their breakdowns and suddenly they were writing stories that, yes, included the disability as part of this person's identity, but were, you know, this person was now a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, you know, and like had a love story and things like that. Um, so in, in way, in those kinds of ways, in uh, what kind of stories we can expect to be telling, um, and talking directly to executives. Sammy addresses a core issue that has been central to the representation of disabled experience in film and on the stage. The idea that our disability would get in the way of us authentically portraying that disability uh, and acting as a disabled character. Whether there is a role that is specifically written around that character's disability so that we can easily build our disability into it, or the idea that we just happen to be an actor or a writer or a sound effects person who is disabled. So thinking about the on-screen representation of characters who are disabled, the question often comes up, how well do they understand what they're portraying if they are a disabled character? And if the character is not disabled, What's the problem with the actor, him or herself or themselves, having a disability? This belief not only locks people out of the industry, but it continues to perpetuate harmful stereotypes as non-disabled actors and writers try to portray our lived experience without having lived it or understood all of the internal feelings, thoughts, and complex emotions going on in our minds and hearts as we try to navigate a world which we have to adapt to as opposed to the other way around. I'm gonna be frank, I think it's absolute BS. Them saying that we went through so many blind actors and we just didn't find the right person, then you didn't try hard enough. This is such a huge element, not just for blind actors or disabled actors, but actors of any marginalized identity. The excuse is always, oh, well, we couldn't find the right person. Well, if you're only ever casting non-disabled people or white people or cisgender people, then the those of the marginalized identity are not gonna feel comfortable coming into your space because they don't feel welcome and they don't feel that they will be safe or cast or whatever, you know, is, is hoped for. So that there needs to be really active outreach. Weeks of training is never going to replace a lifetime of lived experience. Anytime that comes up, that excuse of we just couldn't find the right person, I just absolutely roll my eyes. I don't believe it. Get disabled writers, like, you know. I think so often in conversations like this, um, or conversations of representation, it is so focused on the actors, which is really important because they're the ones that are telling the story, you know, for the audience, but it has to start earlier than that with the writers, with the producers, and I'm not saying that every single person on the team needs to be disabled, but there has to be disability representation in all departments. And if there isn't, like if the writer is non-disabled, um, or if the producers are non-disabled, or the director, then there should be a disability consultant. Because what happens so often is the disabled person in the room ends up becoming the consultant and therefore reliving their trauma right to say oh this isn't this isn't how this would happen here's what would happen but they're not the writer you know they're the actor or they're the director or whatever it is and it's not their responsibility to be a dis disability consultant so that should be a job and i think that's true for so many marginalized identities not just disability that if you are not of that identity and you're telling the story, you better have someone on your team sort of checking your work. In terms of the stories we tell, I think what we were talking about earlier is it's so important to give people the opportunity to tell their story, to tell stories that aren't just about their disability, but that also don't ignore it. You know, like I don't spend my entire life talking about my disability, but it's something that certainly affects my everyday life. 
So I wouldn't want it, it to never be, like, to be hidden inside of a story, you know, to be hopefully unnoticed. I'd want it to be present but not be the focus. And if it is the focus, because those are stories that still, sh you know, can be told and should be told of a disability story, that we are not objects just of inspiration, that we can often fail and f be flawed and be complex people, and that we're also not... <laughs> needing to be cured. I think bringing in the social model of disability is so important um, in telling disabled stories that it's not about somebody overcoming their disability, it's about society getting it together and making the world more accessible. We asked Sammy to explain her approach to dialect coaching. What is the best way to portray a character given the actor's personal lived experience without perpetuating long-existing stereotypes or culturally appropriating. My master's thesis, which has like such a long title and is like such an academic title, ugh, the cultural implications of intelligibility for actors on American stages and the need for anti-racist practices for vocal coaches. What it essentially got at um, in my research is that the way we view intelligibility and the intelligibility of accents that are not our own and that are not of a white middle-class American person is that intelligibility is tied to that identity that I just mentioned that to be intelligible is to speak in that way so the way that I'm speaking is is pretty much that I am a white middle-class US American um, and I have this sort of quote-unquote desired accent that was taught in acting schools for a long time and people were forced to adopt that accent not just on stage but in their everyday lives and strip away whatever their native accent was or natural accent um, and all the cultural identity that came along with it. Yeah, so yeah, at the time it was transatlantic, now it's called general American. That rather than thinking, oh, that person with that accent um, different than my own is unintelligible and they should sound more like me. It's rather how can I lean in and listen more and listen to their message rather than saying you need to pronounce your T's more. And that when vocal coaches are working with actors that it's not about having crisp T sounds or sounding a certain way but it's about having a clear intention behind what you're saying. And so in terms of like teaching accents and how to teach them with cultural sensitivity, I think actors need to be really self-aware of the accents that they're doing. Um, and so I, if I were still performing, I should never be doing an accent of a, you know, black Jamaican speaker. That's just completely culturally inappropriate for me. But I could do, you know, many different French accents but I am not French in my own identity. And so in any accent that I am going to do, that I've decided is culturally appropriate for me, part of the research of acting, and this is what I teach and what I provide when I coach, is cultural context research. What is the culture related to this accent? You know, what are their social norms? Are there gestures that are related to their particular way of speaking? Um, you know all of those things. So beyond uh, sound, it is identity. And they are completely um, linked, that they cannot be separated. And so that when you're performing an accent, you're representing that accent's culture. So to tell someone doing a certain accent or that has a certain accent, you need to modify it so the audience can understand you, is essentially saying you need to modify your culture so it's more acceptable to this predominantly white middle class audience. Sammy mentioned that professors tried to have her not acknowledge her blindness on stage. We asked her about how she prepared for auditions while knowing that she would have to face that type of discrimination based around denial of her identity. In terms of prepping for auditions, uh, yeah, I would do a lot of uh, research into the character and, um, you know, if the play was available, read the play and make decisions about how I wanted to perform the monologue or the scene, whatever I was auditioning with. I'd have to really make decisions about how my blindness would or wouldn't play into this character, how I was going to deal with it. 
in a sense of this character isn't written as blind. Could they be blind? Should I try and hide it? When I would go into an audition, oftentimes I would go and then I would put my cane aside and then do the performance and then pick up my cane to leave. So I was sort of making a statement that now I am acting and now I'm not blind. Um, and I don't think that really worked for me because it didn't feel authentic. And I was very self-conscious about like making sure I knew where my cane was at all times. So I really wasn't in in the moment and wasn't able to really apply a lot of the work I did in preparation. Um, and, and I think not only in um, thinking about how I would incorporate my blindness into the role, but what would those who were uh, doing the auditions, the casting director, director, how would they view it? Could they possibly view this character as blind? How open would they be to that idea of, of this character being blind? And a lot of times I felt that they wouldn't be. And when I would be cast, I would sort of develop my ways of getting around the stage if I didn't have my cane or, you know, ask other actors to assist me off stage during blackouts and such. But I also felt in auditions and even sometimes when I was cast that I wasn't, uh, it didn't even really matter how much work I put into it. Um, there, <laughs> there was one audition I had um, where at the end of it they said, the director said, okay, well, well, if we don't cast you, it's not because you're blind. And I thought to myself, well, obviously it is, or you would not have said that. Like, why would why would you feel the need to say that except, I guess, to cover your butt? Like, I, it just was so awkward and weird, and I wasn't cast, and I'm pretty sure it was because I was blind. I, of course, don't know, and they, you know, legally can't tell me that's the reason, because that would obviously be employment discrimination. Um, but I definitely felt that in the room. And even when I was cast, no matter how much work I put into it, I would always feel like I had to prove myself worthy of being there. And that was certainly part of my own internalized ableism, my own lack of self-worth, but it was also the way that I was treated overall. Now this again is what Access Acting is trying to fight against and we're trying to change, so I think things are getting better, but that's the experience I had and why I stopped. Part of Sammy's story involved her traveling to study in London. Access to information as well as cultural perceptions of disability and reactions to it differ all over the world. By studying how others view and have responded to disability, this will help us to build global equity and a unified cultural understanding of uh, what disability is and appropriate access needs. Sammy shared a little bit about the benefits across the pond that she saw while traveling and uh, ways that we can incorporate some of that culture into the way that we think about disability here in the U.S. When I was in England, there was Braille on every single prescription that I for my medication on all boxes and, and over-the-counter um, medication. And just imagine how nice that would be because as I take many medications for many different conditions, including my blindness, and lots of eye drops feel very similar. And so it wasn't on the bottles themselves, but on every single box or like bag or whatever, you know, sort of container the medication came in. Um, the bottle of medication came in would have braille on it so I could always check to see what I was taking so that's that was huge and I didn't even know I wanted that until I got it and now back I really miss it it was so nice I think attitude is a big thing when I, when I was in England I was very rarely grabbed by a random stranger it happened a couple times but it was very rare. Now I don't know if this is like an, a general English versus American like just way of social norms of interacting with anyone of like physical touch with a stranger or you know reaching out to a stranger I don't know but in America as I'm sure many blind people can relate I'm grabbed by random people all the time thinking I need help or 
that I'm lost or that I will not be able to cross the street that I'm standing at the corner for, um, which always blows my mind because it's like I'm here alone at the crosswalk. Obviously, I planned to do this thing on my own. And, then, and unless I'm literally walking into oncoming traffic, I don't need your help. Um, and so I would get offers of help, but it was always a question. Whereas in the U.S., I feel it's often a, a grab and then a demand. Let me help you. And that's a big thing I've had to work on um, in terms of my advocacy is getting really direct with people and particularly rideshare drivers who I think think they're being very helpful by getting out and helping me to my door even though I say I don't need their help. I've had to get very direct and sometimes blunt with people um, to let them know I don't need their help because people here in particular don't want to hear that I don't need their help. If I need it, I will ask for it. And if someone asks me if I need help, that's fine. I never mind that. But then listen to my answer. And that was a big difference I felt in London that people would ask if I said no, it would be fine, and I was very rarely randomly grabbed. We'd like to thank Sammy Grant for her insight and candor in sharing her knowledge and experiences. For more info on her acting work or to book her as a dialect coach, please visit sammygrant.com. That's S-A-M-M-I-G-R-A-N-T.com to check out Access Acting Academy and their diverse set of classes and webinars. Please visit them at www.accessacting.com. Thank you for tuning in to Vision Toward Success. This program has been recorded and produced by Elena Regan and David Gonzalez from the Tradeswin Audio Podcast Team in association with the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development. Funding for this program has been provided by the Libby Duvon Award from the Fielding Institute, the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind, and the Barry Savings Foundation. Additional episodes of this podcast can be found at www.polacenter.org backslash tradeswin or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>